0: looking into the eyes of someone dying of hunger becomes a disease of the soul, because what you see is that nobody should have to be dying of hunger now, particularly in the 21st century.
1: Welcome back to The BOMA, a podcast from the International Livestock Research Institute, looking at how sustainable livestock is building better lives in the global south. I'm Annabelle Slater, and I'm delighted to have the well-known journalist Roger Thoreau on the program today. Roger Thoreau is a Senior Fellow for Global Agriculture and Food Policy for the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He's a former reporter with the Wall Street Journal, and he's got an impressive list of report highlights from around the world, including the Cold War, the reunification of Germany, the release of Nelson Mandela, the wars in former Yugoslavia, and 10 Olympic Games. But it's issues of famine, poverty, hunger, and nutrition that have held his lifelong interest, Thoreau has written three books, Enough, Why the World's Poorest Starve in an Age of Plenty, The Last Hunger Season, A Year in an African Farm Community on the Brink of Change, and The First 1000 Days, A Crucial Time for Mothers and Children and the World. The BOMA's David Aronson spoke with Thoreau about poverty and development. And I understand, David, that you were really looking forward to this chance to speak to Thoreau.
2: Yes, I really was. Thoreau is one of a handful of Western journalists who have made global poverty into his beat, so to speak. He's uh, spent his life as a journalist writing about many of the same issues that uh, animate the work that we do here at the International Livestock Research Institute. We both, for example, focus on nutrition, development, hunger, and aid for subsistence farmers. And what Thoreau does so well as a writer is that he conveys... what the lives of the poor are like in vivid, granular detail.
1: Now, you begin by asking what turned him away from being the typical foreign correspondent, always jetting away to cover the next global crisis, to his current enduring focus on hunger and poverty.
2: Yes, I was was struck by a phrase of his, that uh, once you look into the eyes of someone dying of hunger, it becomes a disease of the soul. I wanted to know what that meant for him.
0: It was May of 2003 in Ethiopia. It was during the uh, what turned out to be the first great hunger crisis, the first famine of the 21st century. I was a reporter with the Wall Street Journal at the time, a foreign correspondent based in Zurich in Switzerland, not writing about banks uh, or anything, but writing about humanitarian and development issues. So as this hunger crisis began to uh, erupt in and unfold uh, in Ethiopia, uh, I was quickly uh, down there to see what all that was. And it was 14 million people, 1-4 million people that were on the verge of starvation were being fed and being kept alive if they were going to survive at all by food aid being distributed by the World Food Programme uh coming from countries around the world and then other food aid being distributed emergency relief uh as well so 14 million people out of then a population in ethiopia of about 70 million my first day in Addis ababa then uh, i was meeting with the world food uh, program uh, folks that were doing work on the ground and in the, the coming days would be traveling with them to some of the hunger hotspots.
2: It was here that a relief expert first likened hunger to a disease of the soul,
0: to Thoreau. And I'm like, a disease of the soul? Well, well what is that? You know, you prepare as much as possible for, you know, kind of any other the health concerns or, or diseases with the malaria medication and watching out for cholera outbreaks or meningitis outbreaks. But a disease of the soul? So the next day, then we were down uh, south of Addis uh, in the Berecha uh, Plateau area down by Owasa and took a corkscrew road up to the top of a plateau and made our way to a, a little community in a market area that was in a vast field. Normally it would be filled like with uh, market farmers bringing in surplus crops. But then it was filled with emergency relief tents. A whole number of them, and inside each of those tents were dozens upon dozens of starving children, uh, with their uh, parents, and their parents were also in 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 very wretched shape. And it was there for the first time then uh, that I truly did look into the eyes of the of the starving.
2: Unfortunately, these issues remain all too relevant as poverty, climate change, and drought continue to cause widespread hunger in the region. But what is it like to be a journalist reporting on these kind of devastating issues?
0: I felt ashamed because I had been a foreign correspondent for a number of years already at that time, had been based in South Africa, traveled quite widely through Africa. You know, hunger, uh, malnutrition was certainly part of the, the fabric, uh, unfortunately, of Africa uh and many other places in the world but then particularly in africa i was going around and it was all it was part of my stories you know and and, and you know background pieces and in, in stories but i had never really as as we saw then looked into the eyes of the hungry and looked at that human dimension of it and so that then you know did indeed become a disease of my soul i mean to try to take it all in and What's happening here that that three years into this new millennium of ours in the 21st century that there was still this medieval suffering to such a scale. How did this happen. And I came across one a father and his son. His son was about five years old and wages 27 pounds or so when his father carried him in. And he was a smallholder farmer and he, he was looking at me and asking, what have I done to my son didn't really know how to reply. And then I figured, no, that, that's the wrong question. Not what have you done to your son, but what have we done to your son, a collective we that we have allowed, that we have brought this, this medieval suffering with us into the 21st century. So normally as a foreign correspondent, I would have left the tent that day, wrote my story, and then moved on to something else. Where's next? Where's the next story to go to? This is the story that stopped me cold. Uh, and the disease of the soul kept uh, working on me, that this then became the passion of my reporting, this the one story that I had to keep coming back to and back to and back to, and this being the story of hunger in the 21st century.
1: So a little bit later, Thoreau spends a year following the lives of four poor farming families in Western Kenya. This wasn't during a time of famine, wasn't the emaciated bodies, the terrible death rates we associate with starvation. But it was something more ordinary, the routine, grinding poverty of subsistence farming. Particularly during the hunger season, known as the Wanjala, a time that could stretch anywhere from one month to nine months each year, a time when farmers have run out of available food.
2: Yes, and the stories he tells of their lives can be really heartbreaking. For example, of families who must constantly make the choice between buying food, or paying school fees, or paying for malaria medications.
1: And these are grim, impossible choices.
2: Yes, yes they are. But during the year he spent with them, the American NGO began providing assistance in a big way, with higher yielding seeds, with financial mechanisms, with educational programs, and the farmers began to do significantly better. In fact, over time, as conditions in the village improved, Thoreau had an insight into what economic development means. It's not just about getting a little bit richer, as important as that is to very poor people. Instead, it's about something less tangible.
0: Spending all that time speaking with the smallholder farmers and talking about the decisions that they're making uh, in life, kind of, uh, and you know, it turns out that, boy, they're, they're kind of decisions that we all make, uh, you know, a different scale, uh, obviously, but these decisions of how do we spend our resources? So it's like they're leading neither nor lives. Neither do they have enough money to provide food for themselves on a, on a, a, at a sufficient daily basis, nor do they have enough money for or resources for health or education or anything else that's going on in their lives. So neither nor lives. As they improve a little bit, and 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 say income rises then they can start living either or lives oh so now i have enough resources and money that i have these decisions either i can buy some food for the day or i can pay some school fees that are due or buy medicine and provide some health care for you know at the pharmacy or the or the clinic so then suddenly it's either or lives then as income improves and, you know development increases and circumstances improve then you see people and families start living and lives oh now I have enough resources you know my income is approved My farming has improved I have surplus crops I, I have this added income now I have this and I have enough to feed my family for today or for a longer period and to provide health care and medicine and to be able to send my children to school, and to to repair my house, uh, and to improve my 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 shamba, my farming operation. So and 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 and.
1: By the way, do we know anything about what happened to those four families in the years since
2: Thoreau was there? Uh, fortunately, I asked Thoreau exactly that.
0: Yes, it's a great question. So uh, the book came out in 2012, and uh, yes, I have gone back last summer. Uh, when I was in Kenya and then in, in Uganda, went up and saw the families. Uh, they're doing well. The children, they're in high school or have uh, finished high school. Uh, the younger ones on par to do that and the grandchildren uh, as well. So that was great to see. You can see the expansion of their houses. So again, how kind of and comes into their lives. Uh, so they're able to have additional cooking structures. Uh, so they're not having to cook inside the house, so the, the kind of the indoor smoke. Uh, how they're able to maybe have a couple more bedrooms so that the children are sleeping and everybody is sleeping kind of in more secure rooms so they can have uh, the, the malaria nets and the protections uh, that they need. Uh, they all continue to say that yes the, the the wanjala is gone from their lives. it hasn't hasn't come back and visited them, so their farming operations. Seem to be doing better uh they have diversified their crops uh and so you see that they're planting trees so at the time they were as i was doing the reporting affiliated with the one acre fund they still are or most of them uh and that they're still practicing the principles uh certainly you know continuing to gain knowledge that way and and so you see kind of the what huge difference and profound difference it can make when these smallholder farmers and all farmers of the world when they have access to the essential elements of farming that so many of us in the rich world take for granted the proper soil conditions and soil treatments access to the seeds uh, and the proper seeds that they need for their elevation for their rainfall levels access to financing which is the lifeblood of farmers everywhere in the world And then plus the the extension advice of of how to, you know, best use all these things. You know, once they have that access to these essential elements of farming, we see how much more successful, almost in quantum leaps, uh, that they can become.
1: So using Thoreau's words, we'd say these farmers have moved from neither nor lives to and lives.
2: Definitely. And that is an incredibly encouraging story, not just for those four families, but for everyone. Because what it means is that poverty isn't this huge, intractable problem, this thing that we're just fated to live with, but that intelligent, targeted, and relatively inexpensive interventions can make a huge difference.
1: Now, Thoreau's first two books focused mostly on Africa, but in his third book, The First 1000 Days... Thoreau turns his attention to nutrition as a global affair, and he looks at four young mothers in Chicago, Guatemala, India, and Uganda. And he describes the science, economics, and politics of malnutrition, charting the exciting progress uh, of this global effort, and the formidable challenges it still faces. The Bomer had a chance to discuss that book and some of its wider implications, including for livestock farming, in a second podcast, and that will be coming out in two weeks' time.
2: I'm David Aronson.
1: And I'm Annabel Slater. Thank you for listening.